Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh, coming to you on this bright, sunny, late spring day, closing in on uh, Memorial Day and the official start of summer. Uh, I'm Nate Larkin, joining you, uh, joining us always, as always, from the West Coast, Aaron Porter. How you doing, Aaron? Good. I'm, I'm excited about today. It's the, the listeners probably don't know that as I have had to up my workload the last six months, you've been coming up with some great guests, and today is no exception. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. In fact, uh, yes, so Aaron, I think let's just dispense with the normal shooting the bull at the front end of the show, and let's get straight into it with our guest. We'll do it in a second, right here. Stick with us on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. We're going to start with a little throwback, uh, a poem, a short story, a parable uh, that we read several years ago. I I actually don't remember the episode number, uh, but it was introduced. uh, I introduced it back then, I think, as something written by a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. We got quite a bit of feedback from it. I'm going to read it again, and then we're going to meet the woman behind it. So here it is. It's entitled, Daisy. Once upon a time, there was a daisy who grew on a little hill in the sun. She did not yet know the ways of the world, but she knew the ways of her hill, and she was happy. Most days were filled with bumblebees and breezes and other blossomy things. Some days, though, a man would come to visit whistling and smiling up the little hill to where the daisy waited. The daisy did not yet know the ways of the world, of daisies and men, but she was so happy to see his smiles and to hear his whistle that she would stretch her little petals up, up, up to him and say, pick me, pick me, until he laughed and sat down next to her. No, no, he said, for if I pick you, then everyone will see. And the daisy said she understood, even though she didn't. But once every visit, at the very end, or sometimes nearer the middle, or maybe twice, he would say, I can't pick you or everyone will see, but no one will notice one petal. And he would reach down and take hold and pull until a tiny petal came right off. It hurt a little and somehow seemed different than what she had been expecting. But the daisy always said she didn't mind, because then the man would smile and return to his whistling, which the daisy loved to hear. So the days turned to weeks, and the little daisy was almost mostly happy, because even though she missed her petals, there might have been, and there might have been a growing ache where they had once been, She still loved the man, for who else could ever whistle to her like that and smile, such a warm smile? However, all things change in time, even for little daisies. 
One day, when she was feeling especially tired, the man came plodding up the little hill. He sat down next to her, but this time there was no smile. She had felt hopeful when she'd seen him, that hearing his whistle might make her feel better. But there was no whistle. The man sighed. You know, little Daisy, he said, all things change in time. You are not the little Daisy that I knew anymore. You are tired, and you're not always happy, and your petals are ragged and ill-kempt. I do not think I will be visiting you anymore. And before she could even speak, he stood up and began to walk back down the hill. Wait, she said, for if you leave, who will smile at me? Who will whistle for me? I am sad and ragged, just as you say, so who will love me again? No one, said the man, for who would love such a cheap old flower? Wow. Mm. Well, uh, the woman behind that parable is a published poet who we are privileged to have on the show today. Her name is Virginia Luella. Hello, Virginia. Hello. Uh, I sense that there is something autobiographical about that little story. It's from a cycle that is entirely autobiographical, yes. Uh Uh-huh. Tell us a little bit about your uh, growing up. Feel comfortable doing that? Yes, I can tell you a little about it. Um, without betraying any confidences of anybody else in my family. Um, I was raised, um, I was raised by a man who I now understand has sexually assaulted more than one person. And when I was growing up, he molested me when I was very, very young until about um, age nine. And then um, when I started to become a teenager, he started to molest me again. Um, and uh, it, in that instance, it was more um, pressuring and sexual harassment so Mm -hmm. rather than touching so i was a little older and i think he was a little more afraid of what i might do wow uh but uh you were raised in a christian home were you not i was and and that was the difficult thing because i was raised in a christian home by a man who ostensibly was a christian who was kind of the main driving force between me attending church and things like that when I was growing up. And, um, and what I kept finding was I found so much truth in God. It just sort of highlighted the difference between what I was finding with God versus what was coming from this man who claimed to be godly. Mm, Yeah. How did that end up? forming your view of God as father, knowing that you had an adult man in a position to, as you said, represent aspects of who he was. Like, how did that unfold for you? When I was young, um, I'll be honest, I 
for some reason, whatever kind of gift it was that that was given to me that I had this faith in God that had absolutely nothing to do with what was going on in my life. Mm. Because for me, God was a place of refuge and safety in an unsafe world. Sounds like some divine protection there for your little soul. I I really believe so. It's based on experiences I had as a small child praying and things like that that were just um it 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 shielded me emotionally in some respects. So as a teenager, how did that start to affect how you saw relationships, dating relationships um, in general? Uh incredibly unhealthy. Um when I was just starting high school was the first time I was allowed to date and um, an older boy had asked me out and I really didn't feel confident telling him no about anything mm-hmm. because I was just, it was, it was as though when I was around him, the part of my brain responsible for self-determination just kind of shut off. Because it was a situation where in the past, if I, for lack of a better term, went limp and just wrote it out, mm-hmm. it would be over. Yeah. Um, but as an adult, it, it repeatedly got me into very unhealthy relationships um, with men who really wanted to hurt me. And I let them because I didn't know, I didn't feel that I could say no to them. Oh my! Now, it, uh, f- from the outside, uh, you you had a, a, a you were always a very high performer, were you not? Um, yes, I was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all through school, my goal in life was to work as hard as I possibly could and never, ever, ever have to go back to any of that nightmare. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. I would just be so far beyond it, it wouldn't be able to touch me anymore. So mm-hmm. what, do, you, do you mean that like in you would be self-sufficient because of yes. your success? Yes. Did you also feel like that would emotionally put you above it where people couldn't be over you to well, control you in that way? Or was it mostly just physical? I want to. It, it was mostly just physical because when I left home, I kind of promised to myself that I wasn't going to let anybody treat me like that again. And of course I did repeatedly because I didn't address the underlying issues. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, when I first, um, when I first started college and was out on my own, um, more and more it became apparent that I was not unscathed from my childhood. Yeah. How did how did that yeah. form your views as a young woman in your high school and college years on sexuality? Was it a dangerous thing, intimacy, or was it something? You that- know, I think the main thing I did was I tried to make it not matter anymore, because if sex didn't matter, then nothing that happened to me was that bad. Mm-hmm. And so I treated it very recreationally for for about ten years of my life. Um, because, yes, because I, I genuinely didn't believe that sex could be meaningful in a world where it's so frequently harmful. Hmm. 
Wow. What do you think people don't understand? Obviously, there's a lot of different versions of how someone that went through the, the pain that you went through processes it. Yeah. What do you think people that have never gone through that kind of trauma, men and women, just don't get about what's happening in the heart of that little girl that becomes a woman? Um, I think one thing that people don't factor in a lot of the time is the crushing guilt and shame experienced by the victims. Um, I was so ashamed that that had happened to me that I lied for years about it. And, and at one point, I, I actually totally blocked it out for a few years where I could remember that I was molested, but I couldn't remember who had done it. Mm. Um, and it was just that one period in my life. And I was fortunate. I had talked to people throughout this. So I got some validation from people who were like, no, you, you might not have remembered this for a couple of years, but you told me all about it back in college and things like that. So it's uh, communication has always been really important. Mm. So did you find yourself then uh, a doing things and going down roads that you didn't expect that you would ever go down doing things that just didn't fit with your own self-concept? Yes, very much so. I finished college and I had gotten a degree in vocal music mm -hmm. and I was working as a classical singer at the time and getting paid for it and working on my career and building it. And a little while after college, the prospect of going out into the wider world and and also the realization of how many of my choices up until that point had been based on this pain I had experienced. I lost mm -hmm. all confidence in my ability to plan my own life. Mm -hmm. And I just went completely mm -hmm. off the rails. I. I left the town where I'd gone to college and where I was working um, a lot. And I went back to, actually went back to my parents' house for a couple of months. And I was so desperate to get back out of there that I started um, exotic dancing to, um, to make the rent so I could get out of there. So what, tell me about that moment when that idea came into your mind that because that's an extraordinary leap from it is an extraordinary leap it was kind of a quirk of coincidence one of the girls i went to college with with was friends with a girl we had both gone to high school with who was now an exotic dancer and my friend from college is like oh i'm gonna make a little extra money it'll be so much fun we'll go do this and i'm thinking this is my ticket out Mm -hmm. And I went and tried it once and realized that I could shut down just the way I always did with sex and other things related to it mm -hmm. and just perform and, and make enough money that the fact that the rest of my life was a mess didn't matter because I was still, I still had some place to live. Mm -hmm. Wow. Can you, uh, can you take us, I got to tell you, this gets this gets personal for me because there were there were uh, years in my life when uh, I went to strip clubs, and uh, uh, you know it's painful even to think about now. And, and really, what's most painful is the fact that um, I didn't see and didn't want to see uh, behind this 
uh, facade, yeah. the, the act that was going on. Yeah. I didn't want to see the person. Uh, it, was, it was a body, not a person. Yeah. In a way, it was dissociative. It was very much dissociative behavior for me. It's not like I brought my f- full self into the experience. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see the girls that were there, the women that were there, as uh, real people with a, with a backstory. Yeah. Um, you spent some time in those clubs, and you became friends with the other people who worked there. Uh, what's it like, you know, behind the neon? What it's like behind the neon is a lot of people working, Mm -hmm. um, but they are working in many cases because they're desperate at that point. So working there in many cases because they're desperate at that point. Um, a lot of dancers have children, um, sex workers in general, a lot of them have children. Some studies say up to 90% in some places. Um, and the d- desire to the desire to care for your family without depending on um, uh, men who may or may not be in the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, this becomes a way for these women to express some freedom. Unfortunately, the actual activity is so unhealthy that the, it doesn't tend to be very successful in terms of keeping their lives stable. Mm-hmm. Was there any uh, threads you saw besides children uh, in the women that you worked with? Um, and I don't know if you, you know, got into that level of conversations, but did you find that there was abuse in the past for others or it was just, this was the easiest job? No, no. Um, it's, uh, there was definitely a high prevalence of childhood sexual abuse in people's experiences and a tendency to almost, um, display how callous you are towards it. So, you know, I heard about this because people would talk about it as though it didn't mean anything. It was just one more screwed up thing that men did, you know? So, um, yeah. So there was a lot of that same try to, this doesn't mean anything and hurt, hurt towards men. Yeah. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. No small part of me when I was dancing was thinking, finally, I'm getting something back. Mm -hmm. This stuff is going to happen whether I want it to or not. Finally, I'm getting something for it. And, um, you know, that was... That's a strange paradox to me to think of the men in the room that are having a fantasy about this Mm -hmm. person that uh, I think... I understand what you mean, Nate, about it's just a body, not a person. But I think the part of the fantasy is what I see in this person is they want to be doing this. They, they're they glad I'm here. Yes. And that's yet, very much what guys want. The paradox that on stage is a woman that very likely uh, is holding them in great contempt for being there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sex workers in my experience, have, have no respect for Johns. Maybe one or two individual regulars who might become um, pseudo-friends in the context of the club. But um, I, I know for myself 
the the men I worked with who were I had a lot of regulars because that was a lot of how I made my money um, and I would talk to these guys for hours and it's not that I didn't care on an abstract level about what they were saying to me I, I cared enough to have a conversation with them about it um, but at the end of the day in the back of my mind I'm thinking okay if I talk for five more minutes I get another 20 bucks <laughs> you know yeah so, yeah. Um, so yeah. before we move on to the the next phase with some of the other women you knew help me understand a little bit uh, you know I've heard uh, exotic dancers talk in the past about you know they make so much money how could they not they're just rolling in the dough um, but it seems there are different kinds of clubs and different levels of how much you're going to make with this. That's true. I worked in clubs where I made very good money and you can make very good money dancing. Um, a lot of girls do it instead of turning tricks because they can, if they can make enough doing that at a nice club, then they don't have to. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like sex work light. Um, yeah. Uh, so for the women that don't make that kind of money, the, does that become the door into supplementing that with prostitution? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, in the town that I worked in, there were three really reputable clubs that were safe for the girls and nothing really too extreme went on in the back. Um, and then there were the clubs for the girls who weren't quite it enough to get into those other clubs. And those were the clubs where the girls were turning tricks on the side or they were doing stuff in the club that they weren't supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. So what did you learn? Uh, because the, you didn't go down that road, correct? No, I didn't. I was very fortunate that I could get into good clubs. Mm -hmm. But you got to know some of those women. Very much so. And I knew women who, who passed through our clubs on their way to other places and auditioned. And I met women who were auditioning and had to go someplace else afterwards and things like that. So I've talked to a lot of people about their situations. So what did you learn about them? What was going on as they had to shut off yet another part of themselves to uh, take that next step? Um... I can't, I can't overstate how much the impact of sex work is downplayed by sex workers. Denial is an incredibly strong motivator, and so is dissociation. Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that the men dissociate, the women are dissociating too. They are acting out. When I was dancing, I was always acting a role. I had experience on, theater, on stage, and that, that's exactly what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what would what would what would motivate a a girl to take the step from stripping and dancing to uh, hooking? It's almost always money, or they've gotten involved with the wrong kind of guy. Um, a really high percentage of sex workers um, who are who are having. Uh, who are having intercourse for a living, um, a really high percentage have pimps. And it is often 
a guy who tells them where to go and when to do it and how often to do it and and all of those things that the women are trying to tell themselves that they do for themselves you know uh, so in both cases as your body and your sexuality becomes this uh sellable piece of product yeah Mm -hmm. product how does that start to change the way you see yourself yeah you keep trying to block it and say it doesn't matter i became when i first started dancing i spent about a year and a half doing all the drugs i could get my hands on i was trying to escape from all of this and dancing was part of it and now i had the money for for lots of drugs and i had never ever done drugs before that Mm. and um and so many dancers fall into that because it's a way to artificially dissociate yourself when you've run out of the wherewithal to do it on your own Wow. Yeah, we, we found it interesting <clears throat> in talking to various people, whether they're involved in pornography or other aspects of the sex trade, how prevalent drugs and alcohol uh, abuse is. But then, boy, if you uh, Google search like, oh, are drugs prevalent? You're going to get a whole lot of information saying, oh, no, not at all. This is, that's just a myth. Um, from that's really still. not a myth. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I worked at a strip club, afterwards they took me to a party and gave me my first drugs. I mean, literally, that was how it went. Yeah, well, I mean, it makes perfect sense that that would be necessary to numb that out even more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, how did you come out of that? Here you are in now, this life mm-hmm. that you didn't yeah. expect. Let me see. Um, when I first started dancing, like I said, I, I put myself out with drugs. And then about after about a year and a half, I realized I was going to really, truly permanently screw up my life if I didn't stop that. And, um, and I kept dancing for a while after that. But I'll tell you what, my ability to block it out went way down. I had breakdowns in the dressing room. I had all kinds of emotional problems because I wasn't numbing myself anymore. And of course it was all just a symptom of what had been going on all along. Right. Mm -hmm. So at that point you felt like I just need to get out of this. I did. And um, I got a job I didn't really want because it wasn't sex work. And I got out and I just left. It was like the way I stopped doing drugs. When I stopped doing drugs, one day I was doing a lot of drugs and the next day I wasn't doing any. And, and that was it. And, um, and it was the same way with sex work. One day I was working in clubs and had been for a number of years. And the next day I was not anymore and was never going to go back. So help me understand. Uh, we've got, uh, I've been a part of some groups of people that help get people uh, that have been trafficked out of those situations. Yeah. And one of the most surprising parts for me was I always had a very romantic view of once they've been rescued from that, they'll just be like so happy and never want to go back to that. And what I've found is there is such a connection to, I, 
I can't be anything else. That's me. Exactly. And all of the love they've experienced or air quotes love is connected to both the work and sex. So often they will go back to some form of it, even if it's not back on the streets, it'll be with some guy who is similar to their pimp Mm -hmm. and treats them the same way. So help, help us understand a little bit uh, where pretty woman is not the picture of coming out of prostitution. Um, Getting out of prostitution. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think here. I'm trying to uh, organize what you're saying. Um, Give me one of those questions. I'm sorry. Give me yeah. one of those questions so, again. So sorry. just the and whether it's prostitution or stripping, that like you said, this is hard to jump into because it wasn't sex work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so addressing kind of the misconception that others like me might have had that oh, once you're free, you're just so happy to be free and engaging. Yes. Life. No, and you have to remember that the reasons women get into sex work are myriad, and most of them are very bad backgrounds of various kinds. Um, and, uh, and, you know, almost 80% and it's underreported were sexually abused as children, um, as opposed to 25% of the general population. So, um, getting out of it involves learning to love yourself possibly for the first time because that's the only way you can replace what you're getting out of it from emotionally what you're getting out of it. Hmm. And I, I went to therapy and I read books and I journaled and I wrote and wrote and wrote until I had worked through enough of that to not still feel as though I had to behave in that manner. Boy, that is so hard to hear because you were a self-driven, educated woman who had those capabilities and tools. And all of a sudden you stopped doing sex work. So you have less money and therapy is really expensive. So I'm picturing the woman that's coming out without the money to do the therapy or possibly without the wherewithal to know that's important. Yeah. Study skills you had. Well, and I, I was on um, government benefits for a number of years after I stopped dancing. I'm also disabled now. Um, And that was, yes, it's, it's incredibly difficult to get out of financially and it's incredibly difficult for women to get out of it who have never been, as you say, given the tools to rebuild their self-respect and more than that, to arrange their life in a way that they can be self-sustaining without doing sex work. I think that's why all of the outreach to sex workers has to include counseling on resource management, Mm. counseling on how to navigate the government programs can be a great gateway out of sex work for people. It it's not enough to live on usually, but it's enough to make that little bit of a difference if you're motivated. Yeah. So again, Um, it goes to the glamorous idea. Uh, The, Mm -hmm. the glamorous part is getting them off the streets, but then there are, there's years of the less glamorous, 
breakdowns, yeah. emotional hard stuff, <laughs> taking people to government uh, places to help them fill out the forms that they've never had to fill exactly. out before. Exactly. And they don't have the, in, in many cases, they came from abusive homes straight into prostitution. And, um, and they simply don't have the skills, the, t the learned skills mm -hmm. that would allow you to take a step back from that life and go, let me look at subjectively. Cause you've been, if you've been buried in it your entire life with no respect, um, how are you supposed to imagine a world that's different mm -hmm. without people reaching out and showing you? Um, we talked there about getting the girls off the streets. Let's talk a little bit about the irony of, uh, you know, one of the unattended consequences of the recent anti-human trafficking, uh, anti-sex trafficking legislation. Yeah, before we get into that, because yeah. some people might not be aware of the progression yeah. from girls walking the streets to what happened is the internet came out yeah and all of a sudden things changed with how uh, men were finding women yes. yeah talk about that will you virginia um from the sex workers perspective back page in places like it were a godsend okay so ex ex the, sorry ex explain back page because uh nate mentioned it to me and i thought it was actually a back page of a newspaper or something <laughs> Backpage was a, it was sort of in a lot of, you know, local papers, there'll, there'll be some sex ads on the back of the paper or the, traditionally there were. And, um, and Backpage was a website for sex work advertising. And I think among other things, but their sex work thing was the primary um, activity, I think. Um, girls were using it to screen prospective dons and um and they were also using it to make appointments in places that they can more they could more easily control than an alley okay did that also lessen the need for a pimp or were pimps just as a no no it lessened the need for a pimp because if you weren't out on the street a lot of times there wasn't anybody around keeping an eye out for new girls to, to take them on mm -hmm. um so they weren't encountering the pimps nearly as often so Backpage was incredibly unhelpful in that it made it easier for men to solicit prostitutes but exactly. it made it safer for women who were who were prostituting. Yeah. yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, when, when this site and the sites like it were taken down as the result of this recent legislation, I have never seen that kind of panic from sex workers. For people, for a lot of people, this was the difference between maybe I'm going to get killed tonight or I'll probably just make some money. Hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? So the the moral Christians celebrate the conquering of the evil websites without considering the uh, unintended consequences to the people that to are the victims. The yeah, victims. yeah. So tell us a and little bit more about that. Well, I, what I was going to say is that's been the problem with a number of um, legal moves against prostitution 
is they they most frequently penalize the girls. Even the ones that penalize the Johns had the same chilling effect on the safety of the girls. Um, because when men are afraid of getting caught doing something shameful or illegal, they are more likely to lash out against the people they're dealing with. Shame drives a lot of violence. Okay, so the more risky the behavior, the more exposed they feel, the more shame and violence comes. It's the more shame and violence comes, yes, exactly. And I want to be clear, countries where prostitution is, is totally legal still have a problem with violence against prostitutes and shame and all of these other issues because because I think it's my personal take is prostitution is a fundamental lack of respect between the two people involved. The prostitute can't respect the man who's taking advantage of her and the man who's taking advantage of her can't respect her. He can't do it. A lot mm-hmm. of the time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, that's a, that's a hard spot for those that are passionate about wanting to help these women where legalization is not the answer, but then legislation ends up. Is also not the answer. So what's the answer? What's the The answer, answer, Virginia? (laughs) You know, I, I've thought about this a lot and if there is an answer, I think it's, it's, I think the real answer is scary because it feels so insurmountable. We have to somehow eliminate the, the market for sex work. As long as people, as long as there are guys or the occasional woman out there wanting to have sex, empty sex with strangers, um, there's probably going to be prostitution. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know. I just think... It's twofold. It's teaching the guys to respect the women more and also to respect themselves more and teaching the women the skills they need to survive outside of that world. Mm. And addressing it at the root cause, I think, is the only way to do anything about it because there are societies where sex work doesn't exist and therefore they don't have a lot of the violence. And, And guess what? They don't have a lot of violence between the genders in those societies at all. What are what are some of the societies come to mind when you say that? Oh, I'm sorry, I did not write them down. Um, that's my bad. Uh, I'm trying to I'm, think. Like it seems like the more uh, advanced different societies get, this becomes more prevalent. It seems like yes, um, they are. They do tend to be um, less technologically advanced societies. There are also societies that haven't been so indoctrinated with the Western attitude about the difference between the sexes and things like that. And in these societies, men and women may may be viewed as having different roles, Mm -hmm. but there is no implication of value Mm -hmm. to their work other than all work is valuable. Yeah. So things become less qualitative in, in those roles. Exactly. And I think it helps men to, um, in a lot of these same societies, there's no such thing as rape. Men have too much respect for a woman to, to ever think about doing something like that to her, which proves that it can be done. 
It does seem insurmountable, especially with the accessibility to pornography at such a young age for the men uh, or yes, the boys. That is a big problem. So all of a sudden we want, we need that component of their respect towards women, but they're already being just saturated uh, with yeah. disrespect. Absolutely. I agree with you entirely. Um, the porn industry has normalized a lot of unhealthy behaviors. Did you see any shift? I'm not sure what years uh, that you were actually uh, dancing, but uh -huh. did you see any shift as technology changed and men had more access? I saw some shifts in the things the girls were expected to do. Um, as technology improved and they had to worry about cell phone cameras and things like that. Um, I was, this was early 2000s to, to mid 2000s. Okay. So, um, so internet porn was available. Um, internet porn was available. Guys didn't stop coming to strip clubs. They didn't stop frequenting. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Um, and uh, and I don't know from personal experience what kind of impact the advent, the original advent of online pornography might have had because that was a little before my time. Mm -hmm. um, I I would imagine based on what I saw that you had more and more guys coming in with very specific fantasies they wanted to be fulfilled. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's certainly a, a strange and unhelpful phenomenon with how specific uh, pornography gets with the little... Yes, absolutely. It, it's, it's almost as though they create everything, they, they make everything a fetish. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, even things that aren't become, become fetishized in the way they're approached and ritualized in, way, in the way they're approached so that people disconnect from the human being they're with and just focus on the activity. Nate, can you help me understand? Cause I've uh, appreciated uh, a lot of what Virginia is saying, help me understand how women progressed into this. Um, it strip clubs have never made sense to me. I cannot picture anything more awkward than sitting with a bunch of guys um, in that kind of a sexual situation. I mean, it just sounds, yeah. it sounds horrible to me, but clearly uh, that is not yeah. the case. So how does someone go, like what's happening in, in men's minds? Obviously we're generalizing again Yeah. from like, this is my private fantasy world to I'm willing to walk into this awkward because I'm going to stick with it's an awkward situation. <laughs> Yeah, it is an awkward situation, and strip clubs were never my favorite. When I really needed to use, and there wasn't another option available, um, I would uh, sometimes go to a strip club. Uh, always try to pick a seat way back in a corner somewhere. Uh, the, the way I wanted to be up front, and the way I wanted to be seen. Um, it, uh, and for me, just an awful lot of shame and awkwardness and it was i mean to me it's a mystery as to why i kept going 
because I, you know, I never walked, I never left a place going, man, that was so great. Uh, what a good decision that was. And I, you know, I always left with such regret and self-recrimination. Uh, but, uh, I'll tell you what, when, when the addictive cycle gets going and, uh, you don't know how to get out of it. Uh, yeah, there was, there was, uh, yeah. So that represents, I, I, that represents an important step, I would imagine, in an addict's experience where it goes from private fantasy and pornography and masturbation yeah. to I'm going to take this into the physical world. Yeah. So is and, that uh, the way it works for guys? I don't know. I, I do know that all of this is mainstreaming more. And so, I mean, it, I think... Well, part of it is it, uh, going to a strip club with the guys never fit with my public persona anyway. I wouldn't have had guys who wanted to do it. But that's not the, that's not, there are guys for whom that's part of the, these days, uh, kind of a rite of passage or something. It's like going to the ball game. So, so you've got groups of guys like you who are doing it secretly and shamefully, and then you've got the frat boy type, like let's let's be loud and body. And right. sit in the front row. Is that is that what you saw, Virginia? What I wanted to say is the funny thing is is that those frat boys, they all came at night because that's when it was busiest. And some of the girls would make all their money off those frat boys, but they would have to work the entire night to do it. Guys like Nate, quiet, ashamed, maybe looking for a little connection that feels warm um i worked mostly days and i i got to know guys because what they were looking for a lot of them was a piece that was missing from in their hearts um it wasn't an alpha male out with the kind of thing it was i am lonely and desperate for whatever reason and you're going to make me feel good for a little while. So in those moments, whether they're the frat boys or the, the shy guys in the corner, it's uh-huh. you're watching the two waves of brokenness of the women yeah. and the men crash into each other and yeah. become a, a powerful false intimacy. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I had a couple of stalkers because of my method of getting close to guys and, and kind of milking them over time instead of getting it all out of them at once. And, um, and even at the time, there was part of me that was aware that my actions had led directly to this. Mm-hmm. Because if I didn't treat them like they were dear to me, they wouldn't have thought they were dear to me. <laughs> you know so- what I mean? So how did you, you, you did your therapy, you did your work. How did you reconnect with yourself and with God? I assume that that was a, a strange time spiritually when you had to disconnect from that as well. It was, and it was, I, I will, I will share one more thing. I, uh, uh, at least in part because of the abuse I suffered as a child, I have a couple mental health issues and I, Fortunately, I'm in great treatment now and don't have problems now. But back then, I was a mess. I wasn't in any treatment. And dissociating from everything seemed the best possible survival mechanism. 
Mm -hmm. So how did you reconnect? I reconnected. I reconnected by never entirely disconnecting. I tried to, but I remember night after night when I was dancing, crying out to God and just sobbing because I could, I could tell God loved me, but somehow it, it wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was because my, my image of love was so limited. Yeah. Can you describe the not enough? What, what was that? What did that feel like? What, what? That felt like God loves me so much, but it doesn't change who I am as a person. So therefore none of it really matters. So it was all back. And so on it was you. this incredible. It was this incredible sense of 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 despair and shame. Hmm. Um, when I reconnected, I stopped dancing, like I said, and I immediately went back to practicing daily prayer which had fallen by the wayside before I was, I was crying out to God, but I wasn't setting aside time for God before. And doing that helped me forgive myself mm -hmm. and also helped me start to understand the sheer depth and breadth of God's love for me. That was so much more than, than almost anything I had ever experienced. Mm -hmm. And so my definition of love had been too limited. I didn't understand how important it was before mm. that. Yeah. Your definition of love was too limited. Wow. As I think about the other women that, you know, you danced with or that you knew went into prostitution and the brokenness of their past and how that connects to uh, parental figures um, again it might not be a dad it might not be a mom but it still represents that parental figure yes. that reconnecting with the love of a father that that introduces himself through Jesus as Abba uh -huh. and, and that that isn't just a dad I, th I think this is really important to me the Bible gives us a picture of God as father but scripture also affirms that God is not a man or a woman, that men and women exactly. were made in his image. Therefore, we are both uh, bearing parts of God's person, which means God can fill the mother wounds every bit as much as he can fill the perfect father wounds. And, that, and that's what is needed for, for these kinds of brokenness that you're describing. That's exactly right, because... I did at the time for a very long time. I, I referred to God as she more often. I didn't change what I thought God was because I had always thought God was a nebulous, you know, um, non-human figure. And so someone we can't ascribe human limitations to. Um, but at the same time, um, uh, I needed a mother. Mm to show me love so that I could start to understand it from the father mm -hmm. metaphorically. Yeah. And so I went through a time period where I, I, when I was referring to God, I referred to God as she. And that was because when I tried to refer to God as father, I did, I, I had a bad reaction to it mm -hmm. and I didn't want to have that reaction associated with God because yeah. I realized it was misplaced. Yeah. And mm -hmm. how sad that the church in general would frown upon what you did 
as if God <laughs> was not all of that for you. Yes, exactly. And that that wasn't exactly what you needed. And and it's it's very silly because God as mother is a concept as old as the church. Mm-hmm. Um, Sophia and all of those concepts. Um, the feminine face of God. Um, and I think it's vitally important. It's vitally important because it helps men feel more respect for women because they are part of the divine and it helps women start to internalize their own value mm-hmm. in ways that will prevent them from, from, from feeling so desperate that they have to get into some of these dehumanizing situations. Yeah. Uh, the, I wrote a paper in college called The Penis Principle, i.e. God doesn't have one. <laughs> if if I close my eyes and picture God as a man like me, then every woman is not connected to God in that way and must come through me. And women see that in the same way, so they devalue themselves as much as I devalue them. Exactly. Um, that's, that's really... Man, I think it's really important what you're saying. And we'll probably get in theological trouble for having this part of the conversation. Uh, from some of our listeners. Who cares? That, that, that is the next, <laughs> <laughs> the next statement. <laughs> yes. Because you just, I can't imagine God being like, no, you, I, you, you cannot come to my love until you see me as a, as a dad, as a man sitting in the rocking chair. Yeah. Uh, so I I think having that in mind does create the respect and gives a door for many women that uh need to be able to approach God, need a way, need a path in to discover. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. And to 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 simply open that up to women and say many many of you've been hurt by men. Why don't you think of God as a woman for right now and see how you feel in 6 months? Mm-hmm. I've seen women with no understanding of where this masculine God comes from that is preached by so many people um, who have found so much freedom in, in the simple act of acknowledging that God may not be exactly what we expect mm-hmm. or presume. One of my favorite names of God is El Shaddai. Comes up most in the breasted one. Yes, I believe. And that, and that is, yeah, it's translated Almighty God. Um, but the word yeah. itself, as you mentioned, it it doesn't have. Nobody knows exactly what it means. But the root is Shad, which means breast. And so the all sufficient God seems to be exactly. leaning towards breastfeeding and nurturing. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so come come to yeah the breasted God. Which again is like if the shack got in trouble for having God as a woman, this is way off that page now. <laughs> but Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times would I have gathered you beneath my wings as a hen gathers her chicks? Yep. It is yeah. historically speaking been our issue that makes God a man rather than God's issue. <laughs> yeah. 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 But yeah. even for men, we need that comfort. We we all longed for the comfort of our oh, mother's absolutely. breast. Yeah, and to know that God is that refuge that's not just a, a covering like a tent covering me, but a mother's embrace covering me and giving me all that I need. 
Aaron, you're not telling me that what I was looking for in a strip club I could have found in God, are you? <laughs> no, you were just a dirty pervert. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the men, the men's need is uh, the solution to every man's need is no different than the woman's need, both for God to fulfill his love completely in the bigger picture that Virginia is talking about. What a, what an awesome thing. Yeah. Hey, um, my experience is that God has a remarkable ability and even a, a, a determination to redeem our biggest mistakes and uh, use our wounds actually to heal others. How do you see redemption in your life these days, Virginia? Uh, is it all regret when you look back on where you were, or do you see uh, ways in which you are uh, a, a different, a better, and more useful person? That was exactly what I was just going to say. For a very long time, I had massive amounts of shame attached to absolutely everything in my life. Yeah. Almost for, from as early as I could remember, one of the – I was three or less the first time I was molested. My first memories of that. Mm -hmm. I was introduced to shame almost immediately. And right. the gift of – reconnecting with God on God's terms and not on man's terms. The amazing thing is that after going through a lot of praying and processing, and, and that's the thing, both are important. Um, godly therapy is the thing, and it's a good idea for a lot mm -hmm. of people. Um, and what I've found after all of that is now I look back and it, it saddens me. Things about my past sadden me. But exactly that. I have never been anyone but this person. And I can feel how much God cares for me and values me. Mm. And that means God has always cared for me and valued me. Mm. Yeah. And that means, it, that means I have nothing to be ashamed of they were things that happened to me and now I've lived through them and I'm hopefully going to use that, those experiences to, to support other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and if God is a perfect father, then he doesn't look at children saying, well, you don't have to be ashamed because that'll be useful. Although it can be, and that's beautiful, but yeah. it's just the relief of the father for the daughter who's come home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this certainly has been uh, an enlightening conversation, not your ordinary conversation. So grateful, Virginia, for you being uh, willing to share your story. I'm trusting that this is going to be helpful to men and women who hear it. Thank you for your vulnerability, for your transparency, for your courage. Uh, it's a privilege to know you and uh, look forward to seeing more of your published work. I'm sure we'll get feedback from listeners. I'll loop you into everything that they send us. And um, uh, we'll be right back here in a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Spider
Welcome back to the Pirate Monk podcast. That was uh, that was a heavy conversation, but I'm so glad we had it. Oh, me too. Me too. And it just it just to me uh, emphasizes that we've got to have the attitude of Jesus toward those among us who are in uh, this line of work. You know, Jesus took a lot of heat for befriending prostitutes. Actually, counted former prostitutes among his earliest followers, uh, and he always treated them with the utmost dignity, never in any kind of a condescending way as far as, uh, and took heat from the religious authorities, the bright and shiny, squeaky clean people of his day who wanted to exclude the sex worker from, uh, from society. Jesus refused to do that. Wouldn't that be amazing if we were known with the same nickname Jesus had, the friend of sinners. Yeah, golly. And, and also just the, the wisdom. Uh, I know a group of folks in San Diego that actually uh, hang out at strip clubs and a group of women that go into strip clubs to minister and love on exotic dancers. Mm-hmm. And I, they walk that really hard, fine line of saying, okay, our first step is behavioral modification. Right. I'm getting to know this woman. My goal isn't to get her to stop stripping today. Right. That might happen. That might not happen. But I need to address the whole person and her whole situation, which, you know, what's going to unravel? It's an after the miracle thought again. It's a David Ampton thing, right? Yeah. Stop stripping. That's not the end of the story. Now you're faced with all kinds of hardships. And that group in San Diego really does that work with a lot of wisdom and gentleness. And I love that. And I think all Christians need to think about that uh, as they, as they become the, the friends to those that the, even the church might label sinners. Yeah. 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 Let's just be sinners, friends of other sinners who believe the gospel. All right. Well, it was a great conversation, a great episode. Uh, and looking forward to another interesting guest next week. Chad Bird will join us next week. Uh, until then, hold I'm on, Nate. Hold on, hold what? on. If you want to uh, send us a letter or if you want to connect with Virginia and send her a note of encouragement or any question, you can send them to us and we will get them to her. Oh, yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Yes. Send us your letter to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Now we can be their friends. Okay. (laughs) All right. So until next week, I am Nate. (laughs) I'm Aaron. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. (laughs) 